All right, would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4? Uh, we're, we're kind of winding down this, this series we've been doing on joy for the world uh, and our Advent for Advent. Uh, next Sunday, we'll, we'll have our last uh, sermon in, in this Philippians series, uh, and then we'll sort of transition to joy to the world with, uh, with the, the full-blown Advent. But, but we've been paying attention to all these places in Philippians where Paul talks about how important joy is, how significant it is, because we, we tend to, to think that um, joy is just sort of ancillary, it's accidental, and, and if you're a joyful Christian, good for you, that's great, but, but it, isn't that just sort of extra? Um, and, and we forget that, no, it's not extra, it's, it's really, it, it's not optional, it's, it's central, it's foundational, um, and, uh, and, and that's a good surprise for us, and hopefully a surprise to our neighbors too when we start telling them about this stuff. Uh, so we're going to be looking at uh, verses 4 through 7 in chapter 4, so let's stand in honor of God's Word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for this promise of, of joy and peace uh, that are ours in Jesus. Uh, Lord, help us to enter more fully into those realities. Let us receive these gifts that uh, you have for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, first, we do want to say happy birthday to two special young ladies, um, Lily and McPherson. Happy birthday, Lily. Lily's two. And Rosalind Landis. Is Rosalind here? We're not going to say how. Hey, we're not going to say how old Rosalind is. But happy birthday to these beautiful young women. Anyway, um, so so when Paul's launching in here, he's talking about joy, right? He's talking about rejoicing in the Lord. He's talking about. Um, the, the, the peace of the Lord, and, uh, and those are things that we want to dive deeply into. But I want to start by just, you know, asking you uh, how much you must love it when people tell you how to feel. <laughs> don't you love it when, when people tell you to stop stressing or don't, 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 be, don't be angry? Or, or why are you more excited, you know, like the, when, when they have these expectations for your emotions that you can't quite measure up to? It's so comforting and so reassuring. I love it so much. Um, and yet Paul's doing, um, it sounds like he's doing exactly that, right? Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Um, why? Why, why? Why does Paul need to tell the Philippians twice to rejoice in the Lord? Actually, truth be told, this is the third time that he's told them this. Jump back to chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So, so this is the third time now he's told the Philippians, hey guys, rejoice in the Lord. And if you didn't hear it the first time or the second time, or, you know, I'm, I'm going to tell you again, rejoice in the Lord. And it's beginning to sound like a theme for Paul, right? Like he, he's on this, this message uh, and he's locked on. It's not just a theme. It's, a, it's now becoming a meme for him. Rejoice in the Lord with a cat poster or something. Uh, but it's not just unique to Paul. Paul's not just having 
some kind of euphoric experience in a Roman prison of all places, writing this letter to the Philippians, and, and it's just sort of gushing from him in a, in a bizarre or, or a, um, a unique way. This is all over Scripture. All over Scripture. The command to find our joy in God. So let me just review a couple of places in the Psalms. A little sampling. Psalm 32. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, uh, you upright in heart. So Paul isn't, like I said, just kind of on a riff. He's quoting Psalm 32. Hey, I'm going to tell you to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to say it again, rejoice in the Lord. I said it back in chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. And I'm just quoting Psalm 32 to rejoice in the Lord. Just again and again and again, this drumbeat of Scripture, uh, Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Like our missionaries, our partners to reach the nations, you know, at the center of their message is this message of rejoice in the Lord. Be glad and sing for joy uh, God's praises. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe the reason why Paul finds it necessary under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to repeat himself again and again here, is that we have a hard time believing him. Like, we have a hard time believing that, really, Paul? Is, is it really that important? Like, isn't this just sort of optional, like we said? Isn't this just sort of extra? No, it's not. We have a hard time believing that at the center of heaven, like if, you, if, if you were to think of it in terms of the temple, right? Like, you got go through the outer courts, the inner courts, and you got the the holy place, which the priest can only go in a couple of times, you know, and then the most holy place, like once a year. In the most holy place, the center of heaven, the center of God's presence, there, at, the, at the core of Christianity, the heart of Christianity, there's laughter. We have a hard time believing that. It's hard to latch on to that. Like, we think that we have this default mode of discipleship where we're accustomed to think, you know, struggle, sure. Um, sanctification, sure. Suffering, sure. I, I, I know I signed on for those things when Jesus told me, if anyone's going to follow me, he has to take up his cross you know, daily and, and then follow me. Yeah, I understand those things. Struggle, sanctification, suffering. But what if we don't quite see those things in their proper context? Like, what if the call that Jesus has in mind to take up your cross, to to struggle, right? What if, what if Christians are called to struggle out of and against that which would rob us of the joy that is ours in Jesus? What if, what if we looked at sanctification not so much as trying to get better behaviorally, living more consistent with the kingdom? There's, that, that's good. But, but, but what if the real core of sanctification is becoming Christ-like, more, more bearing more accurately the image of God. And what have we been trying to, to labor uh, and, and, and drive home through this series, if nothing that for an eternity past, God has been happy, infinitely happy in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for eternity to come, we're looking forward to a happy future in His presence brought into that fellowship, that joyful fellowship. And if that's what sanctification is, then sanctification means taking on progressively and growing in a holy 
happiness. And what if, what if what we're called to suffer, what, 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 if, what if the losses that we are called to suffer are, to, to borrow Paul's language in Philippians, what if, what if we're just to consider those trash compared to the, the, the surpassing greatness, the surpassing joy of knowing Christ Jesus, our, our Lord? Like, so maybe we just don't quite have the big picture for those things like struggling and sanctification and suffering if we feel like those are somehow opposed to joy. If we feel like somehow those get us off that path to joy. No, they're, they're, they're actually meant to take us either back to that path or keep us on it. And so at the center of heaven, and like the holy of holies, there's laughter. You can hear laughter. And it's been true for eternity past, and it will be true forever. Uh, I, I've mentioned John Piper before in this series because he's, he's written tons on the idea, the reality, that God is a happy God. He wrote a book called The Pleasures of God. He wrote a book called Desiring God. He wrote a, a small, very digestible summary that if you, if you want just kind of an on-ramp to John Piper, it's called The Dangerous Duty of Delight. In that book, he says, we are commanded to rejoice in God. If obedience is doing what God commands, then joy is not merely the spinoff of obedience. It is obedience. The Bible tells us over and over to pursue joy. That, you know, this isn't Paul just kind of having a euphoric day in, in, in Rome, in the dungeon, <laughs> writing to, Philipp, to the Philippians. It's not John Piper doing something new, you know, in, in sort of contemporary theological circles. No, our fathers and our mothers have been beating this drum for centuries, and it goes back to our, um, our, first, our catechism, right? The very first question of our shorter catechism asks, what, what's, why are we here? What's our chief end? Our chief end is to glorify God. How do we do that? By enjoying Him forever. It's, it's central. It's fundamental. It's at the core. Uh, and we can't get around that. You can't explain it, and you can't just kind of uh, ignore it. Um, so instead, we have to reckon with the fact that affections are not optional. This, I'm borrowing John Piper's title to chapter three of The Dangerous Duty of Delight. Affections are not optional. Uh, let, me, let me give you Psalm 37 as an example. Psalm 37, we, we love verse 3. It kind of appeals to that default mode of Christianity um, that, that we're more comfortable with where it starts off, trust in the Lord and do good. Yeah, that makes sense. Trust in the Lord. To follow Jesus means that you believe in Him. Um, we put our faith in Him. We trust in Him. You know, and we have sort of this, this cognitive intellectual like use of our, our orienting our brain to the kingdom of God and, and we put our faith in Jesus we believe the gospel and we trust in him trust in the Lord check and do good amen to that too because when when you trust in the Lord we're not just going to do the easy believism thing we're going to you know do the the biblical thing which means that you not you don't just say that Jesus is Lord but you show that Jesus is Lord uh, and any living faith, any active faith, any genuine faith is going to produce fruit. It's going to 
show itself through that sanctification, through a changed life. Um, and so Psalm 37 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Check, check, got it, got it, good. Now, now we've got our Christianity figured out. No, you don't. Not yet. Because the very next verse says, delight yourself in the Lord. What? And he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. So there's the mind, trust in the Lord. There's the will, there's you know, doing good. And there's the heart. Delight yourself in the Lord. How, how can God tell me what to feel? We, we've been told, and, and there's some truth to it, but it, I think we kind of miss the big picture. We've been told that, hey, feelings aren't right or wrong. They just are. It's what you do with the feelings. And, and that's true in and of itself, but it, it, it sort of falsely lets us off the hook for being responsible for what we feel. We are responsible for what we feel. And we can do things, we can develop our hearts and, and, and channel them in ways that make it more likely that we'll feel certain things and less likely that we'll feel other things. And that's where your mind and your will sort of start to overlap and they all create a system that functions to help us be better image bearers of who God is. So our hearts are not like capricious, independent, you know, nobody knows whatever, you, you, the heart's going to do whatever the heart wants to do. No, it, it's, it doesn't. The Bible tells us that our, we're, we're accountable for, for what our hearts pursue and what our desires are. And that's why God doesn't stutter on this fact. He just keeps coming at us again and again, telling us what to feel and how to feel. Examples here in Romans chapter 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. And again, our default mode of doing Christianity kind of automatically just kind of goes to, all right, let love be genuine and abhor what is evil. That means I should, I should act loving and I should avoid what's not loving, abhor what's evil, and, and, and we, without even thinking, we've assigned that into the, the silo of, of what we do, our actions. But that's not where Paul stops. He doesn't just say, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. He goes on in the very next verse, love one another with brotherly affections. Oh, it's not just actions. It's affections, like literally. Feel love for one another, not just act loving. I mean, if you don't feel love for somebody, the, the best thing to do is to act loving and your feelings will very often catch up. But Paul's not leaving it at, hey, just do the right thing. He is commanding us, God is commanding us what to feel. Peter does the same thing. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Like genuinely love people. Um, the author of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money. Don't feel that way. And be content with what you have. Feel this way. Feel contented. The 10th commandment is thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not feel <laughs> covetousness. And instead, you shall feel, you should feel content, right? Again and again and again, God's just coming after us, coming after our hearts. Um, Piper again says, the scriptures command joy, hope, fear, peace, grief, desire, tenderheartedness, brokenness, and contrition, gratitude, loneliness, etc. It just keeps on going. God doesn't stutter. He is Lord of our hearts, and he, and he has an agenda for how we should feel. So on the one hand, Paul is saying, 
rejoice in the Lord. Feel this joy. But he doesn't stop there. All right? So kind of back to our initial example. Don't you love it when people tell you how to feel? You should be excited. You shouldn't be angry. You should feel this. You, should, you shouldn't feel that. Well, a lot of times they mean well, but just, it, it just kind of comes across flat or shrill. Um, what Paul does is he tells us how to rejoice in the Lord. Like that's where you're, that, that's grace. Okay, now we have some tracks to ride on. He doesn't just tell us to rejoice without giving us something to rejoice about. And so first of all, he says that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Uh, and that's intentionally, you know, something that can be understood in at least a couple of ways. Uh, and that expression is repeated in other places in the Scripture. So we know what Paul's referring to. He's referring to the return of Jesus. He's, re- he's referring to the, the coming kingdom of Jesus, that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of Jesus is near. And, uh, and boy, does that drum get beat again and again and again in the New Testament, all through the Gospels. I'm just going to tell you all the different voices that you hear it from, beginning with John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, in John chapter 3, John the Baptist is on the scene even before Jesus is. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus has preached the same message that John the Baptist did. Um, Jesus said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he tells his disciples in Matthew 10 to go into twos to all the little villages and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what, what does that mean? It means a lot of things, but one of the things that it means for sure is that Jesus is at hand. Jesus is near. I mean, I want you to imagine Jesus preaching that sermon that John the Baptist had preached, and he's like, that's a good sermon. I'm going I'm to keep on that message. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's pointing to himself. I'm near. I'm physically near you. And my kingdom is, is coming. It's near. You know, and he's the embodiment of it. And he was like the theologians like to, like to say, Jesus came the first time to inaugurate his kingdom, and he's coming again the second time to consummate his kingdom, to bring it in all of its fullness. And you got other New Testament voices saying that, repeating that message, like James, who says, be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. Jesus returned physically, geographically, it's near. And then Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayer. So let me just connect the dots. Why should the end of all things lead us to rejoice in the Lord? Why is this helpful? Why is it good for Paul to say, rejoice in the Lord, the Lord is near? Because to borrow Peter's expression, the end of all things is at hand. Because the end of all bad things is at hand. The end of all sad things is at hand. The end of all sinful things is at hand. When Jesus returns, he's going to eradicate darkness. He is going to make sin extinct. He's going to make all of the symptoms of sin, like crying and mourning and pain and suffering and death, they're they're going to be gone forever. 
And that's soon. It's coming. It's at hand. It's near. I don't know when. I can't, tell, can't give you a date, and I don't care how many prophecy conferences you go to. Nobody can tell you the precise date, okay? But it's near. I don't, I, maybe in our lifetime, prayerfully in our lifetime, but in the span of eternity, when we, when we are with Jesus, either we, either we die and go to be with him, or he returns and we go to be with him, it's, at, at that point, guess what? It will feel like the blink of an eye. It won't matter what we're going through right now. So it's near. It's as, it's as near as Thanksgiving. You can smell it cooking, right? So hang in there and, and rejoice in that. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Joy to the world, right? That's what we're talking about. So Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. The Lord is at hand. He's near. Like physically, he's coming again. And it's going to be beautiful, wonderful, joyful. So rejoice in that. And in the meantime, guess what? The Lord is near, spiritually. He's put his spirit in us. He's so near, he's in you. His proximity is, is, is so airtight that you can't get away from him. If I make my bed in the depths or go you know, over here, Psalm 139, you know, he's there. He's with you because you can't run from him. He's in us. And so that's what, you know, the return of Jesus not only, or the nearness of Jesus is not only physical in the sense of his return, but it's spiritual in the sense of his spirit. In Psalm 34, uh, it says that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. So the brokenhearted have reason to rejoice. They've got hope. It doesn't mean that, you know, in an instant the brokenheartedness goes away, but it does lift the face up. It doesn't leave us in despair or distress. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, so near because Jesus put his spirit in us, the spirit that would teach us to, that, that God is a comforter, that God is a counselor, that the spirit that Jesus put in us to remind us of his joy, that, that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. That's the operation of the Holy Spirit in us. Psalm 145 says the Lord is near to all who call on him. to all who call on him in truth. And if you're here and you're going, I don't know, I don't feel the nearness. And I don't, I don't really know if I have the Holy Spirit. I, 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 and I don't know, maybe you've been in church a long time. And even this whole discussion about joy just seems to be mocking you. You know, I, don't, I can't, I don't know, I'm just beat, beaten against the wall. The, the promise of Scripture is that the Lord is near to all who call on him, who call on him in truth, who call on Jesus, the one who is the truth the, and the way and the life, who call on him and rely on him and not rely on ourselves, who, who just throw ourselves into his arms like somebody sitting and resting in a hammock. You ever sit in a hammock and it just, it just envelops you? And you're not supporting yourself at all. All the hammock is doing all of the work, and you're just resting in what Jesus has done for us to take our sins away, to remove the condemnation, to remove the shame, and to give us God's approval and God's acceptance because Jesus has God's approval and Jesus is God's acceptance. And to all who call on Him, He promises to come near. And that's going to give you the feel sometimes, and that's going to leave you kind of wondering I don't know, I don't feel that other times. And again, it's a walk of faith. But we can grow in this. Um, I want you to listen to, 
an ancient voice, uh, a couple hundred years old, a guy named Henry Scoogle. He was a Scottish pastor, young guy. Young, I think he died when he was 32 years old from a terrible disease. Tuberculosis used to be called consumption for a reason. But he wrote this letter to a friend of his, and the letter was so long but so brilliant that it got published as a book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And you've heard me mention this before if you've been, if you've been around for a while. But if you're new, listen to what Skugel says about how our, our trust in the Lord, calling on the Lord, being in Christ, and Him being in us helps us participate in the joy of God's love School says if God were the object of our love, then we should share that love in infinite happiness without any mixture or possibility of it being diminished. And we should rejoice to behold the glory of God and receive comfort and pleasure from all the praises wherewith men and angels do extol him. And it should delight us beyond all expression to consider that the beloved of our souls is infinitely happy in himself and that all his enemies cannot shake or unsettle his throne, that our God is in the heavens and doth whatsoever he pleaseth. It's an old-fashioned way of saying, you know, if our, if our joy, if we're rejoicing in the Lord, then that means that God's happiness can't help but rub off on us. And his happiness is unconquerable. Nothing can rattle his throne. And he's happy in what he does. So this is the Lord of peace who ultimately the, the Paul is pointing us to and the Philippians to in you know, verse 6. <laughs> Here he goes again. You know, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. There he goes, telling us not just how to feel, but how not to feel. Thanks, Paul. Don't be anxious. Oh, that's what's wrong. I've been anxious and nobody ever told me to stop being anxious. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, thank you, Bible. I'm so happy I came to church today because all the money I've been spending on therapists and you know medicine to stop being anxious. I, I just I should have just stopped being anxious, <laughs> right? Verse six, it's right there in black and white. Do you believe the Bible? Huh? Do you believe the Bible? All right, let's talk about anxiety. Um Couple of couple of just statistics to throw at you. I do want to have a, a, a helpful, hopefully, a little conversation about anxiety. Um, the National Alliance on Mental Illness says that anxiety disorders are the most common mental health concern in the United States. Over 40 million adults in the U.S. That's almost 20 percent. That's almost one in five adults have an anxiety disorder. And that's true for people in this room, and it's true for people out, you know, in our neighborhood. Okay? Uh, the National Institute of Health says that an estimated 31% of U.S. adults experience any anxiety disorder at some time in their lives. So, you know, there's one in five currently have an anxiety disorder, and, you know, it's 30% at some point in their life. And then the National Library of Medicine Department of, the, of NIH, um, they said that the, the mean estimated total medical cost, so how much are we spending, right, to take care of our anxiety, the, the, the mean estimated total medical cost for individuals diagnosed with an anxiety disorder was almost 
We're spending a lot of time and a lot of money trying to deal with our anxiety. But I want to be careful how we address this topic, especially somebody else's anxiety, you know, how you deal with your own, that, that's, that's between you and the Lord. But what about dealing with somebody else's anxiety? First of all, not all anxiety is unhealthy. Like there's a kind of loving anxiety, a kind of, kind of uh, relational anxiety that's actually very good. Uh, it's not a lack of faith. It's something that's healthy. And Paul expresses it in, in, the, in uh, Philippians chapter 2. We looked at this a few weeks ago. And Paul's like talking about Epaphroditus. He was sick. He risked his life for their sake and his to be a minister and ambassador and this fellow worker and so on. And praise the Lord, he's, he got better. He almost died. And I'm sending him back to you because frankly, I just want you all to, to be comforted and so that I can be less anxious. Because I was worried sick about this guy. I'm worried about you guys, you know? And that's, that's healthy relational stuff. That's what love looks like. You care, Okay. Um, that's what compassion looks like. The word compassion means to suffer with, right? Um, and Paul was feeling some of that suffering that, uh, that Epaphroditus was feeling, that the Philippians were feeling when they found out he was sick too. So listen, context is so important when you read the Bible. Don't, uh, there's a, <laughs> ran across a great, great quote. I can't remember the source, but it said, never read a verse of the Bible in isolation. Um, Read the, the whole chapter, read the paragraph, whatever, get the context, because, you know, if you hear Paul saying here in Philippians 4, uh, don't be anxious about anything, then you go, well, you, see there, you should never be anxious. Well, in chapter 2, he said he was anxious, so what's going on? You have to understand the context. But let's talk about anxiety that, that isn't great, right? That, that isn't relational, that's not very healthy. And I want to make sure that we leave room for, for compassion for the kind of anxiety that Paul was feeling when we were dealing with somebody else's anxiety. When you're concerned for somebody who's, who's got, you know, one of those negative emotions, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's depression, maybe it's anger or, or something, there's, there's wise timing that's involved. If you want to be a good friend, if you want to be a loving spouse, if you want to be a, a caring parent, you gotta, you got to kind of feel this out and see when is the right time to address this. So if somebody's anxious or sad or angry or afraid, it's generally a good idea to just sort of sit with them in that first. Um, I like the expression, step into their puddle. Get messy. Let some of their anxiety, let some of their sadness, let some of their fear rub off on you. To where you can start to feel it a little bit yourself going, yeah, that sounds awful. That must feel terrible for you. And then they go, oh, you, you understand. Because what ends up happening a lot of times, we don't, we're not in, we don't mean it this way. We're not intending to communicate this, but what, the way we come across to somebody who's got an anxiety disorder or depression or you know, just really, really feeling something hard and painful they feel like they're in a pit, and we're up at the edge, at the top of the pit, calling down to them, hey, come on out, come on. Stop being anxious. Don't be sad. Don't be angry. Why are you angry? You know, rejoice in the Lord. It's biblical, right? But we're up at the top calling down to them, and, and, and you know, it's like, don't be anxious. Oh, thanks. I, I, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about that. I should have not just been anxious. Um, no, instead, what they're going to hear is you scolding them for being sad 
or shaming them for being, you know, anxious. Uh, and, and the solution to that is to go down into the pit with them. Not so that you get overwhelmed, but, you know, you're, you're willing to step into their puddle and sit with them in that pain, in that sorrow, in that, you know, anxiety for a little bit. Where you're, you're, you're starting to get a sense of what that's like. And you can genuinely say, that must be hard. That must be terrible. And then show them the exit after you've sat with them in that. Why? Because this is how Jesus loves us. Before you tell people about Jesus, rejoice in the Lord, look at all the great stuff that he's done for you, you've got to show them Jesus. And how did Jesus love us? He didn't stay... He, he didn't peer over the edge of heaven, you know, over the edge of the clouds. Hey, stop sinning. Stop, you know, hurting everybody and, and get your act together. Just stop it. He, he went down. He came down. And he got dirty. He who had no sin became sin so that in him, when we trust in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what he did on the cross. Taking on all of our anxiety, all of our anger, all of our sadness, all of our depression, all of our greed, all of our lust, all of our, you know, racism, all of our... You know, you name it, you fill in the blank. He took it all on himself and absorbed it into his body, buried it in the tomb, and then rose victorious over sin and death. So that all of us who trust in him are free of that. And we get the exit door. But only because he went to the cross first. He suffered for us. He felt compassion for us. He suffered with us. And that's what we model when we go to people who are feeling um, those negative emotions, right? Does that make sense? Tell them about Jesus after you've shown them Jesus, after you've stepped into that puddle. Then show them how the gospel gives us hope. So while Paul doesn't just say stop it, he goes on to, to tell us how we can get over some of our anxiety. He talks about prayer, right? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So... How many times have you heard somebody, well, have you prayed about it? Yeah, I've prayed. I'm still anxious. Well, that doesn't mean that prayer doesn't work, but some, a lot of times we just do skip over. We do tend to forget. Like, hey, Brady, you got that slide for us? How many of you are anxious about Christmas? You feeling, you feeling stressed about Christmas yet? Do you know what your plans are? You, you got your gifts? For, you know, Black Friday started like three weeks ago. So are you ready? And I like this uh, <laughs> reminder Thanksgiving actually helps our anxiety. Thanksgiving reminds us, wait a minute, I don't have to stress out. I don't have to, like, freak out. I, I, wait your turn, fat boy. We've got to keep things in the right order. So as you're contemplating Thanksgiving this week, don't, don't, don't forget to really, truly give thanks. And that helps our anxiety. Um, and and come, to, come to our prayer walk. Come, come pray with us this afternoon. Because why? Well, you know, Peter echoes Paul, and he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him. And anybody know how that verse ends? Really, you don't? Mm. Here's a good memory verse for you. Cast all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. cares for you. Don't forget that. He wants you to pray. He wants you to bring your supplications with thanksgiving. Pray. 
that actually has an effect on our anxiety. And then in verse 7, one more help that Paul gives. He's not just throwing out, you know, take two verses and call me in the morning. In verse 7, he says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And coming back to this idea that, look, fundamentally at the core of, of, of it all, we have peace with God. Paul says that, therefore, we've been justified with faith. Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently, Paul believes that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Apparently, Paul believes that our hearts and minds need guarding. Uh, we get the word guard from the word garrison. Do you know what a garrison is? It's like a fort, a fortress. Our hearts and our minds need to be surrounded and protected. We need help against, obviously, things that are trying to invade and trying to get in and trying to get into our head and trying to get into our heart and steal our joy and, and, and foster anxiety, right? So on the one hand, you know, we don't want to just say, well, are you feeling anxious? Stop it. You know, Paul's not doing that. He's giving us real tools to manage anxiety and to, to enter more into joining the Lord. But, but there are things we can stop to feel less anxious, right? Are you guarding your heart and your mind? Do you know your heart and your mind need to be guarded? Have you let your guard down? This is the number one invasive force on our heart and our mind that leads to anxiety. Number one. Your, your social media feed, your news feed. How's your news feed doing? Is that just filling you with all kinds of peace and contentment and joy in the Lord? I don't care if you're red or blue. I don't care if you're CNN or Fox. That constant drip, 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 or fire hose, whatever you know, setting you've got, is stealing your joy and is fostering anxiety in you. You can stop the madness. You can check out. You can take a Sabbath. It's healthy. It's good. You'll live. The world will continue, and Jesus is going to establish his kingdom. I promise. It's going to work out. So what else can we stop doing? We can stop self-medicating. We can stop going to places that are actually going to create more deficit than fill us through whatever habits, whatever things that you, we run to in order to sort of numb the pain and it ends up just kind of making it harder. We get more sad. We get more anxious. We get more depressed. So we can, we can actually stop doing some of those things and start rejoicing in the fact that God has given us the gospel. Peace with God who is for you, who loves you, who cares for you. And to let that be a garrison around your heart and your mind. Proverbs 4 says, keep your heart with all vigilance. Don't ignore the threat. And 2 Corinthians 10, we take every thought captive to obey Christ, right? We said before, we spend a lot of time, a lot of money trying to be less anxious, but we've got our focus on the wrong place. We're focused on anxiety. Can I just tell you, stop trying to stop being anxious. You're focusing on the negative. I remember um, Tim Keller was doing a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus is talking about anxiety, right? Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. And, and Keller's like, well, if you leave it at that, if Jesus is just telling us to stop it, then we're just going to be anxious about being anxious. 
Oh, no. I have to stop being anxious. Jesus has stopped being anxious, and I'm filled with anxiety. What am I going to do? Because we're focused on the anxiety. But where does Jesus point us? Jesus continues, but instead, seek, pursue, put in your crosshairs the kingdom of God. And then everything else is going to fall into place. Pursue the positive. Pursue joy in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul's a good disciple of Jesus. And he focuses our attention on the solution instead of the problem. Rejoice in the Lord. I missed a word there, didn't I? Look at verse 4. What does he say after rejoice in the Lord? Always. Don't stop. Keep your focus consistently, nonstop, on how we have peace with God through Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again because we need to hear it again. Rejoice. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus who's given us peace with you, who's given us his spirit so that um, we can know your joy, that your joy can be us and, in us and our joy can be full. Lord, would you minister to our anxiety? Uh, thank you that you're compassionate and caring and that you, can, you come to us in the places where we're feeling pain and, and, and difficulty. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would just have mercy and, and care for our needs. Lord, help us to rejoice in you. And when we're not feeling that joy, help us to just continue to pursue it regardless. And we thank you that you're near. We thank you that the day is coming soon when you're going to establish your kingdom and there's not going to be any more sadness or anxiety. And in the meantime, uh, we just pray you'd fill us with thanksgiving for the fact that you're with us, you're in us, and you give us your peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.